In September of 2012, a shocking turn of events left a diver stranded at the bottom of the ocean. But with only five minutes of air left to breathe, his fate had been sealed. What ended up happening to the diver is so insane, it exploded in the media and ended up being made into a documentary. So make sure to stick around until the end of today's show to learn about the appalling story of Chris Lemons. Welcome to the Truly Terrifying Show. If you like stories about crime, killers, and mystery, then this is the spot for you. We upload one to two times per week on YouTube and all podcast directories. We also post some additional content on TikTok and Instagram, so if that interests you, go check it out. In today's episode of the show, we are going to be covering the unimaginable case of Chris Lemons, who was trapped at the bottom of the ocean with only five minutes of air left to breathe. Make sure you stick around until the end of today's episode to learn the full shocking story. So with that, let's get straight into today's episode. Chris Lemons was a Scottish saturation diver working in the North Sea. If you haven't heard of saturation or sat diving before, it's a special type of diving that allows the divers to reach extreme ocean depths. When a recreational scuba diver reaches a depth of over 130 feet, the pressure surrounding them causes the nitrogen gas in their lungs to dissolve into their bloodstream. If they were to ascend quickly, this nitrogen gas would expand rapidly in the form of bubbles. This is called decompression sickness or the bends and often results in complications and even death. To counteract this, divers simply make 5-10 to minute decompression stops while returning to the surface. Saturation divers work between 200 and 1000 feet deep. At these depths, the pressure is so strong, decompression stops would take days or even weeks to complete, which would simply be impossible. Therefore, saturation divers are lowered into the ocean in these pods that they call bells. The bells pressurize to the depth that they are going, which eliminates any need for decompression stops. The bells have everything necessary to live, and the divers will live in them for weeks at a time. Like I said, the air inside the bell is pressurized to the depth that they will be working. To achieve this, they have to breathe a mix between helium and oxygen, which actually means that the divers have to talk in chipmunk voices the entire time they are down there. Additionally, helium gas actually strips heat from whatever is breathing it, so that means the bell has to be kept extremely warm, and when the divers are diving, they have to be attached to a cable called an umbilical cord, which supplies their suit with warm water and gives them the air to breathe. I don't know about you, but saturation diving sounds like one of the worst professions imaginable. It's kind of like an astronaut, but you're trapped at the bottom of the ocean, swimming in the pitch black with animals just whooshing by you and you can't even see them. In 2012, Chris had been working as a sat diver for about three years. It was September and he was reluctantly saying goodbye to his new fiancée. The two of them were at an extremely exciting point in their lives, and neither wanted him to leave for another month of work. The two of them had finally set a date for their wedding, which would be later that year in April, and they were building a new home together. Despite this, Chris knew that he needed the money. 
So Chris, along with 12 saturation divers and 217 crewmates, boarded the Bibby Topaz, which took them to the Huntington oil field in the North Sea of Scotland. The divers were going to be working on a section of oil pipeline that was about 300 feet deep. The Topaz would be sending multiple missions, so when they got to the drop zone, they would be put into teams of three. On the way there, all the men were anxiously awaiting these teams to be posted because this meant whoever they were paired with, they would have to spend 28 days with in a claustrophobic pod at the bottom of the ocean. Unsurprisingly, the divers you're teamed up with can either make or break an entire mission. Chris got paired up with Dave Uasa and Duncan Alcock, which was welcome news to him. Although Chris was relatively new to sat diving, he had completed multiple dives with Duncan in the past and had briefly met Dave as well. This group would be going first, so when they arrived at the drop zone, the three men loaded everything into the pod and began their journey to the depths of the ocean floor. Chris was a little more nervous than the other two. Because he was the least experienced, he wanted to make sure he was pulling his own weight and impressing them. The North Sea is seriously one of the most dangerous environments on the planet to work in. The water temperature on the seabed is only 4 degrees, which induces hypothermia almost instantly. Additionally, there's frequent storms which cause big waves to hit the boat and risk it moving away from the required drop point. For this reason, the Topaz is equipped with a dynamic positioning system which locks the location of the boat above a specific point on the seabed. That way, if any storms were to hit the ship, it wouldn't move any substantial distance away from the worksite. Also on board the Topaz is a diving supervisor who coordinates all missions using cameras and radios in and outside of the bell. On the first dive of their mission, Duncan was going to remain in the bell to look after the divers, while Chris and Dave were going to go work on the pipe. Duncan helped them get their suits on and attach the umbilical cords to the back, making sure to properly fasten it. Like I said, the umbilical cord is a lifeline for the divers. Without it, they will die. After making sure everything was in perfect working order, Chris and Matt began going down through the hatch in the floor of the bell. When dropping down the bottom of the bell, the divers are instantly enveloped in darkness as they weightlessly drift down to the ocean floor. The visibility is terrible. Not only are they surrounded by darkness, but they also kick up sand and dirt, making it near impossible to see. For this reason, Duncan and the dive supervisor are talking in their ears, telling them how to navigate and get to the worksite. It took them a couple minutes to get used to their surroundings, but with the help of the supervisor, they were able to find their way to the worksite and start working on the pipe. A hundred meters above them, the topaz was getting hit by 18-foot swells. It wasn't unlike anything they had seen before, but the crew was still worried, especially considering that the men were working down below. According to the protocols, it was still safe for them to be diving, but it was slowly approaching the unsafe range. The supervisor was monitoring them closely when all of a sudden an alarm went off. It was a sound that none of the crew had heard before. The supervisor rushed over to the control panel to see more and more alerts popping up. 
The dynamic positioning system on the ship had stopped working and the vessel was now out of control. The ship was now moving rapidly away from the work site, meaning the men below were now in danger. Back on the bell, Duncan had also noticed a flashing red light he had never seen before. But before he could ask what it was, the supervisor interrupted him, telling him he needed to get his men back on the bell as quickly as possible. So he went over the radio and told them they needed to drop everything and make their way back. The wind was so strong above, the ship basically became a sailboat and was picking up speed at an alarming rate. One of the most dangerous situations a diver can be in is being dragged by the ship. Not only does this risk snapping their umbilical cord, it also might drag them into unwanted underwater structures. By the time Dave got back to where the bell was, it had already drifted a ways away. So he began using his umbilical cord to climb his way back to the bell. Behind him, Chris tried doing the same, but he ran into an issue. Somewhere behind them, Chris's cord had got stuck, which meant that Chris had to turn around to go unhook it. He followed it all the way back until he got to the work site where he realized that it had somehow gotten wrapped around a vertical pipe. He tried his best to untangle it, but the ship and bell were getting farther and farther away, which was causing the umbilical cord to tighten around this pipe. He yelled over the radio to Duncan to give him more slack but they were already out. He had reached the end of the line. He tried to untangle it, but the ship and Bell were just getting farther and farther away. So he called back to Duncan. He said, can you please give me more slack because it's tightening around this pole and I can't get it off. But Duncan said, no, we're at the end of the line. There's nothing I can give you. He told him, you have to get it unhooked or else it's going to snap. But there was nothing Chris could do. It was already too late. The cable had tightened so much it was pulling on the bell and making creaking noises. Knowing everything that's going on, Dave decides he's going to go back and help. So he pulls himself down Chris's line until he gets within just a couple feet away. The two of them are close enough where they can see into each other's eyes and Dave can just see the fear in Chris's face. But as Dave reaches out to help, he too hits the end of his line and he's forced to watch as he slowly gets pushed away and Chris gets left behind. Dave reached over and grabbed Chris's cable, which had now become extremely thin from the tension. Chris can be heard screaming for help over the radio when he suddenly cut off and all communication went dark. His umbilical cord had snapped, leaving him with no heating, no air, and no way of communicating. He would be forced to survive off the five minutes of air left in his tanks. Dave is forced to hopelessly watch as his friend disappears into the darkness behind him, knowing there is nothing he can do. So he turns and he makes his way back to the bell. Although Duncan watched the screens go black and could no longer hear him over the radio, as he pulled in the cord, he was praying Chris would be on the other end. But he's heartbroken when a broken, tattered cord comes up through the bottom of the bell. He reaches over to turn off the hot water and gas, but he pauses. He knows that turning off a diver's umbilical cord is basically killing him. Duncan knew that there was practically no way that Chris could survive this. And when Dave came back up through the bell, he too was yelling, we need to go back, we need to go back and save him. 
but I think they both knew there was almost nothing they could do to save Chris at this point. Back up on the ship, the crew was working extremely hard to regain control. They realized that not only had their main computer stopped working, but also their two backups out of nowhere. It was truly a worst-case scenario. The captain decided to disengage the computers and instead rely on manual controls. The problem with this is that the manual controls were meant for a calm ocean harbor, not 18-foot swells. Also, most of the crew had never even touched the manual controls before, so they would have to learn as they went. It started off good, and they were making their way back to the drop point, but they started having troubles. The waves kept smashing into the side and completely turning it around, meaning they'd have to make massive adjustments to get back on course. Back in the bell, it was also getting swung and jolted back and forth, so Duncan and Dave knew there was nothing they could do but sit and wait. That's when they got an idea. In the bell was a remote-controlled drone that they could put underwater and it could swim hundreds if not thousands of feet away. So they released it into the water and they decided to go look for him. The first logical place would have been the worksite, so that's where they went first. At this point, Chris had been without air for 11 minutes. It felt like an eternity as they drove this drone through the pitch black of the ocean floor. They couldn't see anything and the time was just ticking on when all of a sudden up ahead they spotted the structure. Attached to it was Chris's severed umbilical cord, so they went up to where he had gotten stuck, but he was no longer there. So they followed the structure up until the highest point, and there on the top, laying motionless on his side, was Chris. The men back at the bell are staring at the screen in silence, both on the verge of tears. Then, Dave blurts out, he's alright. What do you mean, asked Duncan. He's waving at us. The two men look closer at the screen, and they can see that Chris's left arm is moving slowly back and forth. It kind of looked like he was just swaying in the water. But if you looked close enough, there was an unmistakable tremor to his hand as it moved side to side. Even though they're extremely happy he's alive, they really don't know how much longer he has left. In front of them, they're watching a man who they've worked with and shared stories with. A man with people that care about him and a promising future. And they're forced to watch as this man slowly dies a painful, lonely death. At this point, he had been without air and hot water for over 22 minutes, and it was miraculous he was still alive. But the boat was still not back in position and the crew was trying their best to get it back. Meanwhile, Chris's movements were becoming less and less frequent, and at the 25-minute mark, he had practically stopped. It was becoming clear that they would most likely be retrieving a body and not Chris. The situation was starting to look hopeless, and then, miraculously, the dynamic positioning just booted back up out of nowhere. No one really knows how, but all of a sudden, it was just back up. So then they were able to re-engage the auto mode and it made a beeline back to the worksite. Hearing this, Dave got suited back up, ready to go retrieve the body. When they got to the worksite, he jumped off immediately and swam into the darkness, 
with the supervisor directing him as he went. After a little while, he could see the lights of the drone up in the distance. When he finally saw Chris's body, he wasn't surprised. In a later interview, he is quoted in saying, I wasn't surprised by what I saw, a dead guy on the manifold. So he picked up the body, which was now deadweighted, making it extremely hard to lift, and he made his way back to the bell, knowing that he was carrying the body of his dead friend. When they finally got back to the bell, it had been 36 minutes and 25 seconds. Duncan instantly pulled Chris out of the water and started performing CPR on him. His skin was blue and he was freezing cold, so it was clear that they had no chance of reviving him. Then, shockingly, his eyes opened wide and he took a deep breath. Chris was alive. They say the human brain can only last about four minutes without oxygen before experiencing irreparable damage. So they asked Chris some questions like his name, and where he's from, and what he's doing there, and he was able to answer all of them. It seemed like he was perfectly fine, aside from being near hypothermic. It's theorized that because his blood was so saturated with oxygen from the special gas mix he was breathing, that his brain was able to last and survive that long. Additionally, the extremely cold water slowed his bodily functions, which also increased his chances of survival. Chris survived the incident without any complications, and he was back diving with his team within three weeks, and a few months later, he married his fiancée. To this day, Chris is still a saturation diver. Thank you guys so much for watching this episode of the show. I really hope you liked it. If you liked it, please give it a 5-star rating. It seriously helps us so much. If you have any tips or suggestions, don't hesitate to tell me. You can leave them in the comments or on my Instagram or TikTok. See you next week.